Hey, good morning, good morning. Uh, welcome to uh, Midtown 12 South. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you, Ben, for leading us in a beautiful time uh, of worship. Um, my name is Elliot Cherry. I'm the lead pastor here, uh, and it is a joy to be with you uh, this morning. If you, um, if you belong to Jesus, uh, thank you for bringing the church into this room. Uh, we don't believe that church is um, primarily a building. We believe the church is primarily a people. Uh, and in this COVID season, the last year and a half, that's certainly rung true. Um, however, the church isn't not a place. It isn't not a building. Um, and so thank you for bringing the church to this place, this place to fill this room again um, with worship and to be together and to hear from the Lord. And his word is um, it's good for us. So um, before I start the sermon and the sermon series and the whiteboard, uh, if you're new here, uh, I try to use a whiteboard from time to time. Uh, it's not as much for you as it is for me. Helps me stay on track and not preach for four hours. So, um, but I hope it helps you. Uh, but it kind of gets me back to my classroom teaching days, which I miss also. But uh, before we get into that, I <clears throat> uh, wanted to just pause. And it was this intentionally wasn't part of the opening announcements that Daryl did. This intentionally was put here during the service because I know I have uh, your attention maybe a little bit more. It's just something we want to celebrate, something we want to name. Uh, and when you kind of can. It can get lost in the mix of announcements uh, for sure. So I want to celebrate something that uh, about three months ago, we hired a new children's director, a new Kid Town director, Sarah Norberg, and she is incredible. Uh, She is a unicorn. Uh, I don't know how we found her. I don't know how the Lord brought her to us, but she has killed it, getting Kid Town back off the ground um, and and even uh, navigating through a Delta variant and masking, and she's she's just done amazing. Um, But I want to celebrate that if you are an old or a new uh, Kid Town volunteer, would you raise your hand? Anyone in here volunteered for Kid Town? Yes, we all clap for these people. Um, <clears throat> that a huge to do for Sarah was to rebuild our volunteer army. Most of them are serving right now downstairs during the nine o'clock service, but uh, it's a big deal that she's got an enormous roster of volunteers already. I want to thank you all that stayed on the volunteer roster, but also those of you that joined. Um, In that same vein, starting on September 12th, my birthday, thank you. Uh, I don't know why I'm thanking you. Uh, Thank my parents, I guess. Um, But I, uh, September 12th, we are starting 11 o'clock, the 11 a.m. Kid Town service. Uh, And so, uh, those that just raised your hand, if you are a new or an old volunteer that are on our Kid Town volunteer roster, for that September 12th and beyond, uh, we will be doing two morning services of Kid Town. What that means is, is all of our volunteers, uh, we will probably need your help, all hands on deck, going into the fall. So if you are on that email list, you have gotten an email from Sarah for the fall volunteer roster to fill out every Sunday between now and basically Thanksgiving uh, to help in Kid Town for two services per Sunday starting on September 12th. Uh, so would you check your email again? She's waiting to hear back from a lot. There's a lot of gaps. We know we have the volunteers we have the roster, but we need those that are currently active on it to look at their emails. I know email is archaic, um, but we can't tweet at you, okay? So would you check your email, please, if you're on that list? Um, so yeah, that's it. Celebrating uh, Sarah and the work and the work to come. Uh, we're really thankful. So today, we begin a new sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. And man, this is, it's beautiful uh, what the Lord can do. But the, the last song that Joseph sang, uh, All I Have Is Yours, is really... Uh, we could just go home. I don't even know that I need to waste y'all's time. It's, it's, it's a beautiful alignment of what we're going to be talking about today. So 
we get a new sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. Now, in order to understand Nehemiah, we need to understand context. I'm guessing that most of you have not ever spent or rarely spent any time in the book of Nehemiah. Um, it's not a book that you go to. It's not Pinteresty. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't get... Um, I don't know what the kids do these days. Where do, where do kids put their Bible verses these days? Um, it's, not, it's not really marketable. It doesn't really have this like uh, huge dramatic scene. I mean, there is some drama in it, but it, it doesn't, it's not a popular book. Um, and so in order for us to understand Nehemiah, the beauty in Nehemiah, the message of Nehemiah, we need to understand its context. It has an immediate context of its time. Uh, it was about 450 B.C., about 450 years before Jesus uh, but to understand its immediate context, for us to get something out of it in its immediate context, what's going on in Nehemiah, we need to understand like a thousand-year context, thousands of years context. It gets so much meaning when you understand the large arc that Nehemiah finds itself in, since we're using the whiteboard. So, the story of God in the world begins uh, in Genesis chapter 1. And I need to make sure, um, based on lighting and marker uh, intensity. Can you see that in the back? We good in the back? Yes, Rogers, can we see in the back? Good. Okay, so the story of God in the world begins all the way back in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The vision that God had for his creation, the vision that God had for his world that he created in Genesis 1 was that he would have a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. That is the vision of God. It started in a garden, but Adam and Eve were called to cultivate it and keep it and develop it and nourish it and bring it to life. So that is the vision, a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. Really soon after that, sin enters the world and Adam and Eve are banned from the garden and this vision has been thwarted. Okay, Adam and Eve fall, and so the vision to have a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city has been broken. What's going to happen now? Now, I'm going to speed through like thousands of years, so I need you to get on your theological uh, helmets, okay? Because here's what begins to happen. We have Adam, we have Noah, we have Abraham. Abraham gets a bunch of promises that recapitulate this vision for the, for the uh, Lord and his work in the world that, hey, one day I will have a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. We go to Moses and the Exodus. He leads them to the promised land with Joshua and the time of the judges. And then we get to the time of the kings. Okay, the time of the kings. The first king of Israel is King Saul, then King David. David is the, the greatest king that, that would ever live in Israel in the Old Testament. And then David's son Solomon decides, I want to build a temple in the city of Jerusalem. Okay, this is a big deal, and this gives us context for Nehemiah. I promise it's going somewhere. Solomon wants to build a temple, or David wants to build a temple in Jerusalem. God tells him, you're not going to do it. Your son's going to do it. Solomon builds a temple in Jerusalem. It's a big deal because it begins to reaffirm, hey, wait, 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 wait. Maybe we can be a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. And the temple in Jerusalem brings to life thousands of years later that original vision that God had, the original plan that God had in the beginning. But then... Chaos happens. The kingdom of God splits into a northern and southern kingdom, and the people of God are carried off into captivity in Babylon. And when they get carried off into Babylon, they are enslaved, they are captive, they are not in a holy city worshiping a holy God. The plan seems to have been ruined. When the captives get taken into Babylon, everyone is asking, what is going to happen to the destiny and the promises made to God's people to be a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city? 
Babylon and captivity makes every Israelite question whether or not the promises of God are going to come true. This is too broken. This is too chaotic. Jerusalem has been sacked. Jerusalem is burned to the ground with its temple. This enormous temple that was the dwelling place of Yahweh himself has now been burned to the ground and all the gold taken from it. The plan of God seems to be over. And this mantra, though, Holy, God, holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city, because it's been the plan all along, uh, it is the thing that carries us to the end. Okay, so now we're zooming out. This is where we've stopped now. We're about to get to Nehemiah, but back up for just a second. This mantra of a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city starts in Genesis 1. The people of God in their kingdom seem to get close, and then it goes into chaos again. And so everybody's asking, is this going to happen? But you need to know, this in the book of Revelation is the final vision of God's people. That we would be a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city, except do you know how big the holy city is at the end of all things? It's the world. That one day, God will mend the world. One day, God will heal the world. One day, God will restore the world. And it will look like a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy world. The city of Jerusalem will descend. The city of Jerusalem will come down. And heaven will fall from earth. And we will worship. We will be a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. This is why the Garden of Eden was created. This is what mankind was meant to do. But with the shattered shalom of Genesis chapter 3, Things have been thwarted for now. But this is the plan. This, please understand, this big narrative of God in the world, after Genesis 3, after the fall, after the shattering of Shalom with Adam, he has sought to, to mend, he has sought to restore, and he has sought to heal this broken world so that one day the, the first plan will become the ultimate plan and we will be a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city, except the city will be the entire created world. Okay? Got it? That is biblical overview in like five minutes. All my seminary professors would fire me if they knew that I just went through it that fast. But that is the narrative of God in the world. That is the future we're heading towards. That is God's plan. That is God's massive story. That is God's grand narrative in the world. Okay? So this book, Nehemiah, comes right here. Nehemiah happens about 150 years after the Babylonian captivity, after Jerusalem, or Zion as it's known, the city of Zion. We'll write that up there. That might help us too because we'll hear about Zion. Um, Nehemiah comes with no homeland. He is a captive in Jerusalem. He actually works for the king. He's the cupbearer of the king in Babylon, in Persia. But this is where Nehemiah finds himself in the middle of this grand story that God has promised to one day mend, restore, and heal the world, to make it where there's a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city, one day that will happen, but this is where we are right now. And everyone in captivity is wondering, when the heck are these promises going to come true, and are these promises even true anymore for us? Or have we so royally screwed up that the promises are now over? We're done. What is going to happen to the promises made to God's people to be a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. So we come to the book of Nehemiah. In our English Bibles, it's Ezra and then Nehemiah. In a Hebrew Bible, in the original Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. That Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of God's captives in Babylon coming back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild Jerusalem. A man named Zerubbabel, great child name if you're pregnant. A uh, man named Zerubbabel starts the captives' Uh, train, sorry I'm getting caught on my mic in the back, 
uh, Zerubbabel starts the captive train coming back to Jerusalem. About 50 years after, after captivity, he goes back with a group of people to start rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal that a people would be set free from captivity. They go to the king and they ask the king, can we go back home and begin to rebuild our temple in our homeland? And the king lets them. He returns to restore and rebuild the holy temple in Jerusalem. I wish I could communicate to you that when a group of captives gets to go back to begin rebuilding Jerusalem, the big dealness that that was for God's people in captivity. I wish I could communicate to you the big dealness that the city of Jerusalem, the city of Zion, was for the people of God in the Old Testament. We don't get it. It, it, everything about their identity was wrapped up in them having a city, a place to a, a holy God worshiping a, a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. That Jerusalem was that city. All of the promises of God were tied to the city of Jerusalem flourishing and coming true. Hope for God restoring the world for the Old Testament Jew was inextricably tied to the city of Jerusalem. If there is no Jerusalem for the people of God, there is no big narrative. There is no restoring of all things. There is no healing of all things. As long as Jerusalem is in ruin for the Old Testament Jew, the promises of God, the story of God in the world are over. And so for a people with Zerubbabel to get to go back to, be, to rebuild the temple, this is huge news. When the city of Jerusalem is destroyed during the Babylonian captivity in 587 BC, when that city gets destroyed, someone writes the entire book of Lamentations, the book all about lament and all about sorrow. It's written about the destruction of Jerusalem. They're not weeping over you know, someone getting cancer. They're not weeping over a divorce. They're weeping over a city being destroyed. Because it's not just about the city, it's about the promises of God coming true in the world. If this city is burned to the ground, God's promises are over. So for the people of God to be in captivity, when Zerubbabel goes back to Jerusalem, to Zion, to rebuild the temple, here's what it means. There's hope in the world again. Maybe God will restore all this mess. Maybe God will come true on his promises. Maybe the story is not over. And so... We're going to start Nehemiah. That's the context. He's the cupbearer of the king. And Nehemiah is going to get some sad news on the temple rebuilding front. He gets an update of someone who returns from Jerusalem after the temple has started to be rebuilt. He gets some very sad news in the opening lines of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1 needs this context if we're going to get anything out of it, okay? So, here we go. Let's see what Nehemiah decides to do in response to the sad news he gets from Jerusalem. Okay, Nehemiah chapter one, that was a really long intro. Okay, Nehemiah chapter one, starting in verse one, just four verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twelfth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, that's Jerusalem, and, a, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It's the word of the Lord. Okay. Nehemiah gets news from Jerusalem that all is not good on the home front. They've begun the rebuilding of the temple. They've even begun the rebuilding of the walls that protected and surrounded Jerusalem. 
and, and they hit some trouble. The people back home that Zerubbabel is leading have some trouble. They hit some resistance. If you go read in the book of uh, Ezra, Ezra chapter 4, the building project on the temple and the walls gets halted. It doesn't just get halted. The king ceases the building project. He says you can't build anymore. And when the king ceases the building project, they lose all of their protection from their enemies, and people come in and they, burn, they re-burn down the walls of Jerusalem. They tear them down again. Shuts down the project, which never happens in construction. Everything always goes seamlessly. And when the, the project gets shut down, the enemies come in and they burn down the walls of Jerusalem, the temple project that was on its way. And so when Nehemiah gets word that that is what has happened on the Jerusalem rebuilding front, what does he do? Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah weeps. He weeps for Jerusalem. He fasts. He prays for days. In other words, Nehemiah is deeply affected by the news. Now, this is interesting because it would be, uh, this is, I hope his weeping w- would teach us something. Um, because Nehemiah uh, is about 150 years after the original destruction of Jerusalem. And so he, he wasn't from there. He'd never been there. He didn't know what it looked like. But he knew that all the promises of God are tied up in Jerusalem being restored. And so I tried to think of something like, have you ever, are you so tied to like something in history that getting news of it, getting like a reset of bad news about it would destroy you this much and make you weep this much? Like when was the last time you cried that someone told you Abraham Lincoln was assassinated? Like, never, I hope, or you'd be weird. But it, it's like, yeah, yeah, I know that happened a long time ago. Like, Jerusalem has been in ruins. It's the, the, what, what causes Nehemiah to weep is not old news about Jerusalem being destroyed way back in the day, 150 years ago. What he's weeping about is, wait, I thought it was going to be restored. God, I thought things were going according to, to the rebuilding plan. I thought you really were going to mend and restore and heal the world. I thought, I thought, I thought. And now that it's been halted and the walls have been burned down again, maybe nothing's going to come true that's good. Maybe all of your promises are over. That's not what he does. That's not what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah doesn't respond in despair. Nehemiah's emotions are not fickle here. If you were with us last week, we talked about Jonah. Jonah had fickle emotions. He was suicidally angry at the end of his story. That's not what's going on with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is deeply affected by the news in Jerusalem because he was so clinging himself to the big promises of God in the world to mend and restore and heal. Maybe, God, you haven't given up on your promises, and now this news from Jerusalem thwarts that, or seemingly thwarts that. God, how can you still be good if you're letting this happen to your temple? Nehemiah, in other words, please get this, Nehemiah had a vision for his life that was tied to a vision bigger than his life. Nehemiah's vision for his life was not just about Nehemiah's little life. Nehemiah's vision for his life was tied up in a grand vision that was bigger than his life. That's why he's so deeply affected. See, he could have gotten this news from Jerusalem. I'm gonna draw a dotted line through the news of Jerusalem. He could have gotten that, and he could have said, well, God, I guess none of your promises are true. He could have heard the bad news from Jerusalem and written a narrative about God in the world and what God must be doing if there's bad news from Jerusalem. That's not what he does. 
We're going to see in the very next chapter what Nehemiah does is he says, oh, I guess if there's bad news from Jerusalem, I'm being called to step into that story in a new way. I guess I'm being called. I'm so affected by this news in Jerusalem. It's opened my eyes now to see there must be a bigger story. And what role do I play in that story? He doesn't go to despair and depression. He goes to sorrow and, and, and pleading before the Lord, how can I help this? Nehemiah is affected and then he is moved to action to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's what we're gonna see. That's what the whole story is about. Nehemiah is moved to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's our sermon series title for the whole series, Come, Let Us Rebuild. That's what Nehemiah will say in a chapter. He says to the people in captivity with him, come and join me in playing our part in this grand narrative. Come with me, people in captivity. Come with me and let us rebuild to play our part in this grand narrative that the Lord is telling in the world. That's what Nehemiah does. Let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that its inhabitants can be safe and the people of God can return there and we can maybe rejoin the story of God having for himself a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. Nehemiah's vision for his life, this is today's thesis, Nehemiah's vision for his life is tied up in God's vision for the world. Nehemiah had a vision for his life bigger than himself. This story of Nehemiah is not a what's my vocation story. This Nehemiah story is not a God fills the hole in your heart story. This story of Nehemiah is the God of the universe is writing a story across space and time and history. And what part does your little, little dot and mist of a life play in that grand narrative? That's the story of Nehemiah. You are a puzzle piece and your life will not make any sense on its own. That's the story of Nehemiah. Your life is a puzzle piece and does not make any sense to you or anybody else as long as it remains its own puzzle piece. It has to join the bigger picture. It has to join something bigger than itself or it will be miserable. This is so counterintuitive for us. Like Nehemiah did not see himself as a single dot like in the world existing with the billions of other people in the world and how do I find my way and find what brings me joy and find what, bring, find what brings me life and healing and wholeness and happiness. Nehemiah tied up his little dot of a life in the grand story of what God is doing in the world. Nehemiah's vision for his life is tied to God's vision for the world. This is so counterintuitive for us. We were not raised this way. Culture has not taught us this way. We were raised to ask this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? You can be anything you want when you grow up, and it's not true. I want to play in the NBA. It's not going to happen, okay? I, the, the question of like, if you just set your mind to it, you can do it. And if you just hit the bullseye on the perfect fit for you in your life, and you just find your perfect vocation, you just find exactly what only you can do in the world, if you just find pure ecstasy and joy about what you want to do with your life and don't stop till you find it and don't let anything stand in your way. That's a lie from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. It's not true. We, in 2021, are invited like Nehemiah to not just see our life as a dot that we have to hit the bullseye on finding exactly what we're supposed to do with our life and then maybe we will find contentment and then maybe we will find happiness. 
Nehemiah actually finds all of those things ironically and counterintuitively by giving up the pursuit of what is he supposed to do exactly with his life for his own uh, pleasure and joy sake. Your life is so small, and I mean this with all love, our life is so insignificant. Here's how I know this. No one will be talking about you in 100 years. No one will even know your name. You know how I know that? Because you don't know someone from 100 years ago's name that you're even related to. You don't know your great-great-grandfather's name if you do your weird. But here's, here's what I know. No one is going to be talking about your life in a century. It's a mist. It's a breath. This is what Ecclesiastes is all about. No one's going to remember you. All is vanity. Nothing makes sense if you're only focused on your little life being something super special and super spectacular. You are not the main character in the story of the world. But the things that you want from that pursuit, the things that you desperately long for from that pursuit, only come when you join your life to the bigger story and say, how does my little dot of a life fit in this big story? That's what Nehemiah is doing. When we only focus on our little life, our little dot, our little mist, it leads us to do things like this. When we don't have meaning or purpose or joy or fulfillment or contentment, we don't have those things, we think we've done something wrong or something's been done wrong to us, and so we move on to the next thing or the next marriage or the next job or the next city. And Nehemiah invites us into having a vision for your life that is bigger than just you. Do you know the misery of a life that is only centered on the self? Do you know the boredom of that life? I'll make it a little bit more offensive. Do you know how boring you are when that is all that you're focused on? It's because your life is a dot and doesn't make any sense if it's disconnected from the grand story. We thought that the quest of deciding for ourselves what our own story should be and what our own narrative should be and what our own purpose should be, we thought the story of doing all that ourselves would free us and liberate us, but in the words of James K.A. Smith, it does the opposite. He says, we thought we were our own liberators. Turns out we might be our own jailers. It actually imprisons you to just think about your life that way. What is my story and how do I get to write my narrative for my life to find joy and meaning and purpose and happiness? The difference between what the culture as we know it and what the Bible offers us is this. I don't get to make up the story. It's not me forging a story for myself. It's me being found in a story, a greater story. A story, get this, this is what's so beautiful and, and ironic about this. When you join this story, when we join our lives to the greater story, guess what happens to us on the line? We get mended, we get restored, we get healed. That, that's, but we're out here trying to do all those things for ourselves, writing our own narrative, writing our own story, finding our own meaning, finding our own purpose, making up our own rules. Because we want to be whole, we want to be mended, we want to be restored, we want to be healed. But only when you forget about yourself, only when you tie your story to a greater story do you actually get those things. Because that's the story that God's writing in the world. It's almost the exact opposite of self-help. And yet it speaks to what our cultural moment of self-help and self-discovery is looking for. We're all looking for wholeness. We're all looking for healing. We're all looking for integration. We're all looking for identity. And when you join the grand story, you should get that. It's probably important. When you join, sorry, <laughs> when you join, oh, it's Steve. I'm sorry, Steve. I didn't mean to throw you under the bus. I'm sorry. 
when you join the grand story, you actually get all of those things. You actually get wholeness and healing, identity and integration. Fleet foxes, yes? Anyone? Some people. Um, helplessness blues, man, if you wanna feel good about yourself, don't go listen to that song. Here's, what they, here's the opening line. Fleet foxes, helplessness blues. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique like a snowflake amongst snowflakes. Unique in each way you can see. And now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. I thought I was a snowflake among snowflakes. I thought I was so unique. I thought my story was so special. I thought I was the central character in the movie of the world. I thought everybody was thinking about me as much as I'm thinking about me. And what Fleet Foxes says, I don't even know if they believe in Jesus. I have no idea. They probably do. I don't know though. Now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. Like I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted from trying to just be a snowflake among snowflakes. I'm, t- I'm so tired of believing I'm so unique and everything about my life and my story and my sin is so special. I'd rather be some functioning cog in some great machine serving something beyond me. That's what Nehemiah is caught up in. Something beyond himself, something bigger than himself. Please hear this though. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Nehemiah, because he's caught up in this grand story, isn't numb. He's not emotionless. He's not a robot. Him being caught up in this big story is what causes him to be so affected. Remember his response? He weeps. He's full of emotion. He's not a robot. He's a person. He's a human being. He's caught up in this grand narrative. So caught up in this grand narrative, he's fully alive as a human. And he gets to weep and lament and fast and pray he is so sorrowful and prayerful. He is not despairing and bitter. He is, this is holy tears being cried. The news from Jerusalem, this news up here from Jerusalem that came to him that could have, could have thwarted him, could have made him question the whole big story. The news from Jerusalem could have made him doubt all of the story. It didn't though. What it does though is it moves him to action in the story in a new way. He was already caught up in the story. The news disrupted him in such a way that it moved him in such a way he was now called to new action in the grand story. Nehemiah gets in his gut that he is the one that is to lead the team to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. This disruption from the news in Jerusalem calls him into action in the grand story in a new way. The story that he doesn't get to make up. The story that he's not writing the story that's not about him. This isn't about his vocational satisfaction or his personal wholeness. This is about him joining the story in a new and fresh way because he was so moved by it. So let me ask you, what do you do with life's disruptions? What do you do with news from Jerusalem? What do you do when there are things that disrupt your world, when there are things that you did not expect, when there are things that you didn't plan for, when you thought the story of God was going this way and he turns and says, no, that's actually not what we're doing right now. Things that are unwanted. What do you do with news from Jerusalem? Like how were you affected this week by Afghanistan? Did it affect you to see babies thrown over barbed wire fences 
Like, does that move you? Do you care about that? And I'm not saying you have to move to Afghanistan. I'm not even saying you have to like, um, like get involved with some Afghan organization. I'm just asking, did it move you? Did disruptive news from Jerusalem disrupt you in such a way that it affected you? How are you affected by human trafficking in our city? Ask Mary Trapnell her news from Jerusalem and how it disrupted her in such a way. It didn't cause her to despair. It caused her to get re-involved in the story in a new way. I can't sit by and watch this happen. I cannot let that story go that way. Lord, how can I play a role in your grand story? How are you affected by the marginalized and the disenfranchised in our city? And look, those are all like meta, like Afghanistan, human trafficking, all the marginalized and injustice in our city. Those are things I hope affect you. How about this though? This should drive it way home and it's just as much a part of this big story as any other global news or any other human crisis. How does news from Jerusalem, how does disruptive circumstances, like how does a fight with your spouse disrupt you? Does it make you doubt if the big story is true? I thought I was supposed to have an easy marriage. I thought couples that loved each other were never supposed to fight. I don't know if I want to be in this story anymore. Or does a fight with your spouse make you think this way? Maybe the Lord is affecting me in such a way that I would move into this story in a new way where what happens in this story always is that I learn how to give my life away. Could a fight with your spouse on the way home today awaken you to give your life away to your spouse in a totally new way? How are you affected by news from Jerusalem, circumstances that you didn't plan for, circumstances that you don't want, circumstances that could make you doubt the whole story or could get you involved in the story in a new way? See, because this is what Nehemiah is doing. He's being affected by news from Jerusalem in such a way that he doesn't doubt whether the big story is over or not real. The news from Jerusalem rightly affects him so that he's called into the story, the bigger story, in a new way. In the words of Frederick Buechner, he says this, by and large, a good rule for finding out what we are to do is this. The kind of work God usually calls you to is the kind of work that A, that you need most to do, and B, the world most needs to be done. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Do you know, do you know what will make the, world's, the world deeply uh, satisfied? Do you know where you will find your most happiness? Do you know what the world most desperately needs is for a God to heal and mend and restore the world? So what Buechner's saying is, where does the place where God usually calls you is a place where your deep gladness, the joy of giving your life away, and the world's deep hunger and deep need meet. So here's my invitation. Would you let the disruptions in your life be the doorway to inviting you into the bigger story and bigger vision? You're gonna be disrupted this afternoon in some way. And you can get angry about it, you can get bitter about it, you can doubt the story with it. Or you can realize I'm not the main character in the story. I'm not a snowflake among snowflakes. I'm not that unique but maybe I could come alive in ways that I didn't know possible by becoming a cog in a narrative machine bigger than myself. Maybe that would actually be what I was meant to do. That's what Nehemiah shows us here. There's a bigger story, and Nehemiah is stepping into a vision bigger than himself. And the rest of the series, we're gonna see Nehemiah, what it means, what it takes to step into that vision bigger than himself. That's what, that's what the whole book's about. All the things, all that that means for someone if you're gonna step into a vision bigger than yourself.
But Nehemiah is here, kind of, if you can see it. Nehemiah is here on the timeline. He's here in the story. And no God-fearing Jew at this point in world history, no matter how much they hoped in the promises of God, no matter how much they built their life, no matter, no matter how glad they would have been to hear of the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem, none of them would have believed that Jerusalem could be the holy city that it needed to be without a king on the throne. None of them. They would have only believed that full restoration of God's grand story, they would have only believed that this story will only mend the world and will only heal the world when there's a Davidic king on the throne. Or to put it in Old Testament language, the story of God healing the world would not come to completion until the Messiah appeared. That's what that term Messiah means, the anointed one, the anointed king of David from King David's line. So no matter how much Nehemiah goes back to set to accomplish in Jerusalem, we'll see he does a lot in Jerusalem, the story will not find its culmination until Israel has a new king. And so relatively soon after Nehemiah, given the, the grand scope of the history of all things, Soon after Nehemiah, one would come. Somebody would come. A Messiah would come. One would come to Jerusalem. And this one that would come to Jerusalem not only knew the grand story of God in the world, this one that would come to Jerusalem not only would know the plan to mend the world, this one who would come to Jerusalem would not only know God's plan to create for himself a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city, but this one, like Nehemiah, would be so affected by the news of God's people, the state of God's people in the world, that it would deeply affect him. And this one that would come, like Nehemiah, but greater, he too would weep for Jerusalem. He too would see Jerusalem in the state that it was in, and he would weep over the state of God's people in the city. This one, many, many times, would also have tears for Jerusalem. One day this Messiah, Jesus, Jesus the greater Nehemiah, Jesus the truly unique one, like if anyone could ever say they were a snowflake, if anyone could ever say they were truly unique and no one was ever like them, that Jesus would take action to carry on the story. And Jesus too, like Nehemiah, would come to give his life away in Jerusalem there too. He would come to rebuild and he would come to carry the story on. And the work of Jesus, here's, what's, here's why this is great news for you. Jesus coming, it doesn't just like pick up his part in the story, it completes the puzzle, it finishes the work that was needed in order to make this thing come true. And so Jesus now in his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, makes the puzzle happen. The work of Jesus not only gives the story its main character, the story of Jesus means the whole story now rides on the hinges of the person of Jesus. And because of him, your puzzle piece now fits in that story. The New Testament says that this story now, coming to completion one day, this story now, mending and healing and restoring the world, cannot be stopped because of the work of Jesus. This story now, is guaranteed to happen because Jesus has come and did what he did. This story cannot be thwarted. This story cannot be stopped. This story really has no threats because of the completed work of Jesus. In other words, 
Now in our space and time, no news from Jerusalem, no news that you get. And I don't mean to be flipping about the bad news and the disruption news that you can get and you might get today. I don't even pretend to know what you're all going through and how you've all been disrupted maybe this week or this season. No matter the news from Jerusalem, no matter, no matter the disruptive news, because of Jesus, the new Jerusalem's coming. No news from Jerusalem can stop the new, the new Jerusalem from happening. That's where this story ends in Zion, the mended heavenly city of God where this kingdom is heaven. We will be one day a holy people worshiping a holy God in our holy world and all will be mended. And the invitation of Nehemiah is, will you join that story? Because of Jesus, we have a sure future. Will you join the story? Would you take your eyes off of your little dot of a life and would you ask the Lord to move you and affect you to join this story maybe in a new way? Let's pray. Jesus, um, the new Jerusalem, the, 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 the Zion that we're heading towards, Man, I hope that weeks like this make us long for it more. I hope that a year and a half like this make us long for it more. But I also hope it wakes us up. It gives us um, new eyes to see where the Lord may be calling us. Maybe it's just with our neighbor. Maybe it's just with our children. That mending our children, nourishing and nurturing our children is just as much a part of this story as anything. So Jesus, give us eyes to to see the story you're writing in the world. Give us courage to join you in the project to rebuild what's been destroyed. And like Nehemiah, may we be moved and affected in such a way that we see you and hear from you in a new way. Thank you for Jesus and the promises that he gives us that this one day all will be made well. We ask all this in his name, amen.